Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I will now do the reading, which is from Titus 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and the children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will misline the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. I'll now pass over to our, uh, our good friend Tran, who will be getting into it with us. So, take it away. Thanks, Nick, for the word. Um... Man, it's, it's cold today, isn't it? It's real cold. I have this, this small vest on, but I'm not quite sure if I should have my puffer jacket on. I feel like that's the fashion these days. If you're an Adelaide person, you have to have a puffer jacket. <laughs> it's just me? Okay, cool. Um, welcome to City Light North Adelaide. Uh, my name's Andrew Tran. I'm one of the elder candidates here. Uh, you have the unfortunate pleasure of listening to me again this week, back to back. But nevertheless, thank you for having me. I'm thanking you for coming today. Um, We are week two of three in a mini-series on Titus that we've entitled Healthy Churches and Healthy Disciples. And we're looking at what does it mean to be a healthy church. Before I get into today's talk, uh, I just want to have a quick quick clarification. Um, Last week, uh, I was listening back to my sermon because I always do that, not because I'm narcissistic or anything, but just to make sure that I'm not preaching anything bad. But I need to clarify something. Um, I said men are to love their husbands. Nope, that's not what I meant at all. I meant men are to love their wives, or better yet, husbands are to love their wives. So um, please forgive me for that. Um, Luckily, no one came back with that to me, so... um, I'm just admitting it to myself, uh, to everyone now, but that's fine. Don't worry about that. Um, anyway, last week we looked at Titus 1, where, um, if, you, if you were here last week, uh, Paul underpins the entire letter of Titus, uh, to, to Titus, uh, about knowing, uh, 
by knowing the truth or by having a relationship with Jesus and knowing the truth, that is what informs who we are as people and that transforms our behaviours. And secondly, and the majority of the time we spent last week talking about and this particular truth, how do we know this truth? And uh, that gospel-shaped elders are to proclaim God's truth in the church to encourage the people, but also to protect the church by rebuking false teaching with this truth. And so this week, uh, we, continues, we continue Paul's train of thought. And so today's sermon title is called The Pattern of Discipleship. Um, from our reading today, uh, you may have gathered there are a lot of instructions. They may seem like there's a bunch of do's and don'ts, but I want you to bear with me. On close inspection, I believe that Paul wants us to see three things from our text today, from, from Titus 2. Uh, the first thing I think Paul wants us to see is that healthy disciples live countercultural, gospel-rooted lives. Secondly, I think Paul wants uh, to, to tell us that, uh, that gospel-rooted living is missional. And Paul finally reminds us that at the end of the chapter that grace has come and glory is coming. I'll let you get the, on, if you're writing anything down, I'll give you a second to write all that down. Great. Let's, um, uh, let's, let's say the chit-chat and get right into it, eh? Um, and let's pray first. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we know that you said that when your word goes out, you have promised that it will not come back empty to you, but, and that it will achieve per, the purpose that you have, which, with which you have sent it. Lord, help us to be about you tonight. Help us to trust you. Help our unbelieving hearts, that we just don't uh, hear the words um, that you are speaking to us tonight, but that we become doers of your word. Holy Spirit, move in us tonight. Soften our hearts, and I pray that you crush our pride. I pray that anything that I say that is not helpful or scriptural, that you remove it from the thoughts and minds of our people today. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and accepting in your sight. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Um, as I said earlier, um, last, last week we left off with... Uh, Titus 1. Uh, Paul was writing, uh, just a recap of what ty- where Paul was writing to, Titus was in Crete. Paul was writing to, to this pastor named Titus, and uh, Crete is a, was full of a culture that was pretty dishonest and pretty debaucherous. Um, Epimenides was quoted by Paul, and anyway, Paul says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy guns. This is the kind of um, situation that Paul was writing into. And by the end of chapter 1, Paul instructs elders to correct false teaching. The false teaching that leaves hearts unchanged towards God. The false teaching that is reflected in the behavior of those in the church. The behavior that is out of step with the gospel. And so Paul instructs the elders in verse 1 to what? Teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Not to teach what is pragmatic, not to teach what is culturally acceptable, not to teach what seems to be a good idea or is maybe appears to be morally correct, but to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. To, as the CSB puts it, proclaim the things that are consistent with sound doctrine. ESV says to teach with what accords with sound doctrine. NLT says to promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. 
Now, before we get into this text further, it's important to note that some, of these, some people think that these instructions in Titus 2 were only relevant for that culture at that time. But Paul didn't say, teach what is appropriate for that culture. The basis for Paul's instructions that he gives us in Titus 2 is what? Is sound doctrine. And although Paul is speaking into the licentious context of ancient Crete, the basis for the instructions is based on the timeless truth of God. And therefore, it has applications for us. And if we have been radically saved by the grace of God, we will want to live in a way that reflects his word, right? As I said last week, the gospel truth informs who we are and it transforms our behaviors. These kinds of behaviors, this gospel-rooted living, is naturally countercultural. It grinds up against the natural human tendencies, our natural human tendencies towards depravity and self-righteousness. So what is this behavior that Paul is talking about? Oh, Paul, he lists a whole bunch of things here, and this list is not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts, but it, is a, it helps us to live in a way that reflects that we have been saved by God. Helps us to be holy, for he is holy. Helps us to be set apart, because he is set apart. And we want to live by his, by his good design, right? So, in the rest of Titus 2, um, Paul mentions several groups of people. He addresses them. He, he addresses older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. You might be thinking, what does this have to do with us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's, let's keep going. Um, you may know that many of these behaviors um, are actually applicable to both men and women, but Paul makes particular mention to certain behaviors to uh, the Christian Cretan women and men and women back then. And because they're human and we're human, we have a, we have a lot in common. We have a lot to learn from these Cretans. So in verse 2, it says this, Older men in the church are to live lives no, verse 2 says, Teach the old men to be temperate, worthy of self-respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Older men in church are to live lives worthy of imitation, especially for younger men. Temperate means to be cleared, clear-headed, sober-minded. Worthy of respect means to have a purity of their li- the purity of lives which evokes honor from onlookers. Self-control doesn't necessarily mean just to be stoic and lacking empathy and emotion, but to be in control of his actions, not to be brash or overbearing. And older men are need to be sound in the faith, in love, and endurance. And what does that mean? To pursue Christ himself, to pursue his mind, his heart, his holiness, and to have resilience in faith that demonstrates maturity. And some of these qualities grate against men's natural tendencies, right? Uh, that's a bit of a, this is a bit of a generalization, but I think this, it, reply, it applies to men today. Men, some, our natural tendency is to be lazy and to be self-centered and to be apathetic. If you're married, this is not a good time to nudge, but would you not agree? No? Okay, cool, just me. I'm not married, so I don't even know, but there you go. Healthy churches have older men discipling young men, not over craft beer or over filtered coffee, but by the content 
of their countercultural lives. And we look at age, we look at, when we look at age, we wish we were younger. All of us wish we were younger. I'm 28, I wish I was younger. <laughs> we despise age. Our culture doesn't think that older people have anything to contribute. They think they're dinosaurs. We think they're, they're not helpful. They're, un, they're, they're unreliable. They're, they're not relevant. But Paul does not think so. He instead thinks that older men are rather unvalue models of grace-paced living. And similarly with older women, it says in, uh, um, in verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they, uh, they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. When, um, I was reading a commentary on, on, for the term, um, on the term reverent, and I love this. It says this, The tenor of their lives was to display a consecrated holiness to God. That's, that sounds heavy, right? Not to be slanderous means to not gossip or pass judgment, but to have a healthy respect for others. Not addicted to too much wine. This is um, when Paul was talking about this, he was, he was speaking into the debaucherous uh, context of Crete. But Paul is calling older women to not be controlled by two shots of vodka, but rather be controlled by God's spirit. And outflowing from this, older women are to teach what is good. And to teach who? Next verse, to teach the younger women. Older women in Crete were instructed to teach younger women to what? It says here that they, they, then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children. Now this sounds a bit weird, right? If, you, if you're married, it sounds, you just assume that we just love your kids, right? You just love your husband and your kids. Why, why does Paul have, why does Paul write this? Why is Paul mentioning this? He would only mention this if this was not the norm. If this, was, if this was not already happening. And for some of us, we might be thinking, Paul, that sounds like a super revolutionary idea, bro. But here's a reason for why he mentions this. The instructions to follow are in light of this instruction to love their families. And what does he say? He says, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. When you read this, what do you think? When you read this text, what do you think? Any, any words? I'm gonna just gonna address the elephant in the room because obviously we're all feeling it, right? For our 21st century liberal progressive culture, this doesn't just touch a nerve, it strikes a nerve. Especially when our culture hears this, they say this is why Christianity has to go. It is oppressive. It is misogynistic, it's, rep- it's repressive, it's, it's repulsive, it is chauvinistic. Women aren't objects, they aren't servants. How dare you make women subject or inferior to men? Christianity hates women, right? Some of this is true. Women aren't objects. Women aren't servants. Women aren't inferior. We could spend a whole entire sermon on this topic alone. I'd love to, but um, we just don't have the time for that. But let me just reassure you with just a disclaimer here. Women are made in the image of God. Women are made with equal standing before God. We see equality in the Genesis account, right? Well, that slide's a bit early, but that's right, yeah. (laughs) That's right. 
Let's just kill him a mojo, that's fine. That's all right. <laughs> nah, that's okay. Um, we'll get to that slide. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, um, we see equality actually in the, narr- in, in, in the, in the creation account. Um, and you might be thinking, what does that happen, Andrew? Well, God tells Adam that, um, if you know the, 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 in, the, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, t- God tells Adam that it is, not, it is not good for man to be alone. He, makes, he says, oh, uh, we, we'll find you a helper. And so God makes all the animals and, comes and brings the animals to him. And Adam names them dog, cat, giraffe, whale. And he does not find a suitable mate. And so Adam's put to sleep, and God makes another human from him. And when Adam wakes up, the narrative changes to song. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I will call this person woman because she has came from man. He's so excited to see her. He's so excited to see her because he's been looking for a mate that, and they were all different and he sees a woman and it's someone that's like him, someone that's equal to him. And yet, God calls the woman helper. Interesting enough, I don't know if you know this, but the word helper used in, this, in, in Genesis 1 and 2 here, it's the same word that God uses for himself when he helps out mankind. So it, and we see in the Genesis account that, that um, this definitively illustrates that God does not convey worth or value through assigned roles or responsibility. God is not like us, where we give more valuable, valuable quote-unquote people to the places of power or to dominate. God is not like us. So before we get into what Paul is really getting into here, um, we know that Scripture is very, very, very clear that men and women have equal worth, dignity, and value before God. And also know that the gospel-centered Christian doctrine has elevated the standing of of women in oppressive patriarchal societies in ancient times, especially. But yet, what does Paul say here? Paul is instructing that women be busy at the home, kind and subject to their husbands. Now, what Paul is not saying is that women should be chained to the kitchen. Now, this is a slide. Should be chained to the kitchen making sandwiches. It's not a, it's not a, a call to return to 1940s. But rather, at the, verses, at the start of verse 4, he says that they, um, one of the ways that women love, young women love their, their family, their husband, is to contribute to the life of the home. And it's very easy to be caught up in the word home. I believe, though, what we should do is really take note on the part about being busy. To show conscientious effort. So that, not, so that the word of God may not be maligned. Some translations say to be keepers or managers of the home. And one of the privileges that young women can have is to be absolutely kingdom builders, earth-shaking, earth-shaking kingdom builders, by not, just, by not just managing the household, but by setting the temperature of the household. Not with a thermostat, but with how things are run at home. We know that our actions and our habits shape us, right? In home, Women, young, women, young mothers have a, have a powerful place of guidance, influence, and responsibility. Not just seeing the, how they run homes, but and also how they relate to their kids and their, and their husband. And we see this, in, um, for example, in Second uh, Timothy 1. Paul, Paul was super encouraged by Timothy's faith because Timothy's faith was inputted so deeply by his grandmother Lois and, his, and more importantly, his mother Eunice. 
And I can say without hesitation for me personally, I would not be the man that I am today without my mom. And I'm not saying that my dad neglected me or didn't love me. He did definitely do those things. Right? He definitely loved me and was there for me. Right? You can, trust me, they're both Asian. <laughs> but the, the discipleship opportunities that young mothers are presented with are unfathomable. And by God's good design, mothers have been carefully and uniquely wired for it. Healthy churches are made up of older women who live godly lives and who disciple younger women to do the same. Now, maybe you're thinking, what about the women who work, Trent? We live, in a, we live in a culture where women work now. I'm like, does that not mean that women can't have careers and can't climb the corporate ladder? I'm like, no. I, I am definitely saying you can do that. Get, in fact, get educated. To God's glory, be the best. Be the best engineer. Be the best dentist. Be the best lawyer. Be the best doctor. Be the best cabinet maker. Be the best nurse. Be the, be, be the best CEO. Go, you get that bread. If a man looks at you and thinks that you aren't, your work is not comparable, you put your head down and work for your master as if you work for the Lord because the Lord will have his vengeance. But Paul is telling young Cretan women to don't neglect your unique place in the home to, to mold and shape your family. And uh, truthfully, as controversial as it may or may not be, potentially for a season, if you have kids... That may mean stepping out of work to look after children, to be at home. And I don't, pretend, I don't pretend to know how this works. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I know every home will be worked differently. And the specifics will be up to you and your husband to, 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 to determine how you will, you'll be faithful to his commands here, to be busy in the home. There are some good things about our culture, zoo, on women, and we can affirm some of those things. Things like equal access to opportunity, standing against belittling and violence against women. And, but I want to assure you, as, as some of you may know, I work as a physiotherapist. You'll be surprised at the, 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 the number of women that come in who postnatal who feel pressured by society to go back to work, and they feel like they're looked down because they're taking, quote-unquote, the easy road out. Anyone who's a stay-at-home mom, you will know that that is not, uh, that's more than a full-time job. Non, these are non-Christian mums who, by God's intended design, they want to look after their families. They come in for low back pain and neck pain because they're feeding their kids and they feel torn apart and it's crushing. Paul's instructions here might sound repressive in our culture, but if we but if we see, that's only repressive if we see our meaning, our worth, and our value if they come from works, if that comes from works. Instead, for all of us, not just women, for all of us, we need to find our meaning, worth, and value, our infinite value that is in Jesus Christ, the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't just stop there. He instructs the younger men in verses 6 to 8 this. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them, up, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Interesting, like, 
many of the groups addressed before. Paul starts here with likewise. But if you look at the but if you look at the specifics here, what does he say? Be self-controlled in what? In everything. It's as if the young men had everything was going wrong for the young men. Sexual purity and restraint, emotional discretion in their personal relationships, self-mastery of food and alcohol, in everything. We, Paul is calling them to be self-controlled. Paul is yelling out, yelling out, don't be led by your sinful impulses. Be unlike the culture you are in. And for us men, younger men here, speaking to myself here now, it means to not participate in what our culture calls toxic masculinity, which is kind of obvious, right? But like um, Titus wants, uh, Paul wants Titus to model to young men to be serious, to have sound speech, speech that does not drive quarrels or rebellion or greed or irresponsible living, unlike that of those of the false teachers. Seriousness and sound or soundness of speech that is not, it's not necessarily a prohibition for, towards fun, but he wants us to speak in a way that has so much integrity that no one can launch any accusation against us. And especially for us young men, when that might include, and probably includes, our careless joking our witty banter, our non-malicious sarcasm, especially in our Australian culture. Because, you know, I've, I've been really, really built up by the people just constantly tearing me down, right? That's, that's super helpful. That's sarcasm, if you don't know. I'm, I'm really bad at sarcasm. Everyone tells me that. And Paul then gives us one last instruction in verses 9 and 10, to slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them um, in, ev- in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they, may, they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. He calls slaves to be subject to their masters. And Paul's main concern here it's not necessarily for if, it's, if, if slavery is good or bad. He certainly is not condoning slavery here. But instead, Paul's instruction here is for slaves to what? Work within the system back then. God, the gospel does not advocate for revolt. But instead, it advocates for submission. And ultimately, submission first and foremost to the holy, sovereign God of the universe who is in charge of everything. Again, I'm just going to quote another commentary I was reading on this particular verse. and This is great. Um, The Christian ethic always transcends human reason and practice. Christianity penetrates to the inner spirit. The hope may be freedom from slavery, but the impetus is pleasing God. And although we ourselves are not slaves in our culture, we certainly work for masters. What would it say to our bosses if we worked for them as if we worked for our Heavenly Father? It's kind of obvious not to steal from work, but what if we refuse to, to participate even in like the, the innocent, quote-unquote, innocent borrowing of a single pen? 
our Australian cultures don't work hard, work smart. Why not work hard and work smart? Imagine the contrast between our normal work culture if we just, we, didn't, we weren't there just to fulfill a contract, but we were to do it for the joy of our employers. Not, abuse our, not to abuse our boss's goodwill towards us, but rather show care and diligence and joyfully work. Healthy disciples live countercultural, gospel rooted lives. Gospel-rooted lives, these lives great against the natural grain of our culture. God calls us to be salt and light, to be a preservative of what is good in culture, to live lives that are so transformative that it infects culture and then it infects culture and affects it as well. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, uh, it's not Spurgeon, it's not Calvin, uh, it's not Luther, it's this guy, Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry is the uh, leading point guard for the um, Golden State Warriors. If you are an NBA guy, you will be feeling really sorry for this guy because he didn't, he didn't win the NBA championship, unfortunately, and he had his best player leave him. Kevin Durant is leaving for his own particular reasons. And this guy, Stephen Curry, he is one of my personal f- uh, favorites, um, not because he's great at three-point shooting, not because he is... Uh, um, he, 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 is one of the all-time great, greatest three-point shooters of all time, and score has like I think it's like fourth on all-time three-pointers. But many commentators ask, why is Kevin Durant leaving Steph? And it's they question why, and it's a good question because Steph is such a good guy. They say he's a family man, he's kind on and off the court, he's integral, he's hardworking. He's admirable, he's desirable, he has life-giving qualities. And this is in a culture in the NBA when you have guys like J.R. Smith who go off to a parade and he's shirtless, drinking Hennessy from the bottle, and and, and, and that behavior is deemed as culturally appropriate. Christianity must be more than words and doctrine, but those words and doctrine must lead to different lives in the culture. Healthy disciples live countercultural, gospel-rooted lives. Paul has shown that Christianity must prove itself to be different in the public square. But one thing we have not talked about a great deal tonight is the spiritual impact of godly living, which leads me to my second point. That gospel-rooted living is missional. Countercultural living is not for the sake of being upright. It's certainly not for being deeming yourself as morally superior. Living the way that God calls us to live as disciples is not to make us better than those who don't know him. Rather, one of the purposes of godly living is, is mission, godly living is to be missional. And godly living in itself is missional in of itself. Missional doesn't just mean that you go out on mission and make converts. It's certainly, that's certainly part of it, but it's no less than that. But let's look at it within the context of the church here. Uh, interesting to know that um, Paul is writing these instructions here to people inside the church. Notice the relationship between the young and the old. The older people are modeling for the younger people. The younger people are accepting of this modeling from the older people. If we want to follow teaching that is uh, according to sound doctrine, Paul wants us to follow this model of discipleship. Last week we talked about 
um, and we did a quick budget talk, and we talked about our desire here at City Light North LA to be a multi-generational church, and there's a good reason for it. Um, what we mean by that, by having multi, a multi-generational church, is not just to have people of different generations to just come here, but to have a community from, of, from, of people, made enough of people from all walks of life, gripped by the gospel of Jesus, together, um, in a way that is um, not just transactional, but is actually intertwined. We want to paint a picture of gospel unity, where we have a community that crosses socioeconomic barriers, that is transcultural, that is cross-generational, not multi-generational, but cross-generational, where, the cro- where cross-shaped living happens across and between people of different life stages. And I recognize that we, as, as a church here, we're a fairly young church. I think young spiritually church as well. We're not, we're not new, but there's a lot of young adult people here, right? Yeah, we are lacking, put it out there, we are lacking more middle-aged and older adults. It's funny how our culture hates getting old. The, old, the, the golden days were youthful, right? Culture looks down at old people and they think they have less to contribute. But Paul sees us differently through the church. And that God has designed this church to ideally be this way. And I know that we're not in the ideal situation at the moment as we are. So what we need to do is actually pray for more older adults to help us grow in faith. To help us reach the harv- reap the harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Us younger folk here need to participate in the lives of our older adults who are already here right now. Older adults who are here right now, you need to participate in the lives of us as well. We all need to give and receive in terms of fellowship and discipleship. And what I'm not saying is I'm not, I'm not discounting the need for dem- uh, demographic-specific ministry. Those things are good and wise in certain circumstances. But Paul has established this pattern of discipleship within the church, within the first 10 verses of Titus 2 that we've seen today. I mean, we want to be people who hold the gospel as key, right? We need to be serious about this. If you're new to church, if you're looking for a church, whether you're new to the faith or you've been faithful for decades, get involved in a discipleship group. Our discipleship groups have, uh, we're moving towards uh, regional or geographically based discipleship groups, and the partly the intention behind that is that you will grow with people that you naturally don't stick with. And no doubt, some of us will feel like we don't connect well. Understand that. One, one thing, as one, uh, when we talk in our elders' meetings, uh, us and the elder candidates, um, we are very aware of this, this feeling of not, not connecting well at church. We hear you. We understand. But let me encourage you and to challenge you. Be bold. Step out. Persist for the gospel. And by God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, if you're an older person here, you have no idea of the potential impact that you might have on a disciple here. And if you're a younger person, you're finding it difficult, to hard, difficult and hard to connect with older people. Again, be bold, step out, persist for the gospel. Come under the life experience of a mature Christian because it is humbling. As much as we... As much as we like to think we know it all, we need to ask older people, teach me the fear of the Lord. You might be thinking, what if I don't, 
develop any connections over anything. It's just small talk. Well, I encourage you in um, 1 Corinthians 9, it says, um, I've become all things to all people so that by any possible means, all possible means, I might save some, and I do this for the sake of the gospel. We drop our preferences, knowing that we are family in Christ. If you think about it, long term, we're going to spend a lot of time together. <laughs> we're going to spend a lot of time together. You better get comfy, bro. But seriously, though, how easy is it that we just want to be with people that just conform to our preferences? And this doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with everyone at church. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that I would encourage you to examine your relationships at church. Are you with people just like you? We want to be serious about growing disciples that make disciples, right? We need to take this pattern of discipleship seriously. And it doesn't mean that you have to be as a formalized one-on-one Bible reading time. It can be that. But it can be as just simple as living life that is hospitable. Not one that where you entertain people at your house. So you can do that. But life hospitality as defined by Scripture is where you get to share the intimacies of your life with someone where your life is on display for others to enter in and to see how you do life. You see this explicitly when older women, uh, Paul tells older women to teach young women, says in verse 3 to 4, teach the older women to, to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers and addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they will, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. Similarly, in verses 6 and 7, encourage young men to be self-controlled. How? By being an example, by doing what is good. How do, so you might be thinking, how do we do this? Well, firstly, know that we're all on the same page. We all want to grow in our Christ-likeness. We all want to be disciples who make disciples, right? We must let go of our natural tendencies and preferences. We must embrace difficult and sometimes awkward relationships. It doesn't mean that I'm not saying that you have to make awkward things to be awkward to just be awkward for the awkward's sake. You don't have to be like, hey, I think you're really cool. Uh, I like you a lot. Maybe we should uh, hang out or something. Uh, no, there's not, not saying that at all. But be resolved in working on fellowship and share your life. And if you think you're not mature, especially if you're an older person here, you think you're not mature enough to input into someone's life, then having your life on display will really, really make, expose you, expose you to, to where, you, where you're at with things. That's one sure way to fast-track resilience and dependency in God, right? <laughs> I mean, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. None of us are really ever properly ready but modeling repentance and seeking God's face as you grow encourages younger Christians to do the same. The word disciple, the root word disciple means student. We are always learning. We are always growing. And although discipleship is where doctrine can be taught, it is where also godly living can be caught. Healthy, disciples, healthy churches have disciples that make disciples that make disciples. If you're still breathing air in Christ, you are still on the playing field. But godly living is, isn't just for the sake of the believers in the church. It has spiritual ramifications within the public domain as well. 
When we say gospel-rooted living is missional, it ultimately means to be involved in God's mission, right? To make disciples inside the church and outside. This sentiment is lifted throughout Paul's instructions. If we look at it here, it says in verse 5 that young men, young men should behave so that no one may malign the word of God. Verse 8, young, women, young men should be self-controlled so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, slaves be self-controlled so that in every way they will make teaching about, the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Our lives are an apologetic for the gospel. Paul is not undermining the, uh, the importance of words, but Paul is convinced that the content of our lives must show off the glories of Christ. What's the use of great doctrine that supposedly saves if it doesn't impact you in any way? Our holiness matters in public square. When we drive our cars around, civility matters, especially if you have a Jesus fish on your car. <laughs> when dating Sexual purity matters because it communicates what you esteem most. Not even just sexual purity, but how you flee from all manner of sexual immorality. With our social media, with our Instagram, our Facebook, sound speech matters because the content and demeanor of our speech communicates the posture of our heart. With our tax refund, how you spend that matters because it communicates where your treasures are at. When conflicts arise, especially with your spouse, how you handle that matters because it reveals where your pride lies. Our lives must testify to the goodness that God has had to us, has, has to us. And I wonder for all of us, can this be said 100% of the time? Or will people find things that we've done that will bring disrepute to God? If people opposed us, will they be able to say bad things about us? Does the content of our lives make, Je- make us uh, make Jesus look like we hold him cheap, cheaply? Gospel rooted living is missional, inside and out of the church, and holiness must be taken seriously. But the trap here is that it's impossible to be perfect, and I can guarantee. When we hear these instructions and, man, we have to do it, we have to, we have to do all these things and just, and if we try with our white knuckles um, to keep God's commands, to do the right thing, we will fail. And it is extremely depressing. And I'm not going to lie, it's extremely difficult. Old habits die hard. We are prone to wander. We, have, we experience the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life that makes sin look tempting. So how on earth do we do this? How do we live lives according to sound doctrine? Well, lastly, in verses 11 to 14, it says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. How how do we do this? We stop focusing the attention on ourselves or how good or bad we might be. We look at grace that has come and we look at the glory that is coming. 
we look at the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, people love asking me to do things or ap- uh, for things to do or applications from a sermon, and I think directive is helpful and pastoral, but this prescription works against temptation. When you're confronted with sin, or if you're confronted with the temptation to sin, it's not trying to run away from sin that's, that's going to fix it. Rather, we need to divert our eyes on him who did not sin, but rather lived a perfect life and died on behalf of us. We look at the precious gift of grace that God has made available to all people. When we understand the cost of our sin was God in the flesh, how could we belittle such a perfect gift? And that's not a guilt trip. Rather, grace happily drives us towards righteous living. This is what it means that grace teaches us to say no. When we recognize the cost of grace and it outweighs our sin, it makes sin look so worthless. It makes Jesus look so much better that, that Jesus has the life-giving water of life. When we know how much better knowing Jesus is, we can turn down the lies of our flesh and the lies of the enemy. Grace has come for us. And we need to look towards grace always to keep our wandering eyes off from sin. We must remember how sweet grace was when we first tasted it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. And the other thing that drives is not just grace. The other thing that drives us holy, our holy living is not just grace, but the glory to come. The knowledge that one day striving is, will be no more. Knowing that one day we will never have to ever, ever, ever strive again. We've been set free from our bondage of sin and we still live in this fallen world, but this hope drives us to just hang in there, to hang in there, that one day we don't have to ever do this ever again. Paul uses the image of, a, not in this particular um, text, but in, within his epistles, he uses the image of a race. Life is a race. Life is um, a, not a sprint, but a marathon. I don't know if you've seen guys in a marathon at the end, um, but some guys lose bladder function. Their energy stores are depleted. Their bodies start attacking their own muscles to get energy. They fall over. They graze their knees. They injure themselves. But they keep pushing. They keep pushing. They keep pushing. Why? Because they see the prize ahead. And our prize is seeing our beautiful Savior on that glorious day face to face where he says, "Good and well done, good and faithful servant. And although it is hard, Paul reminds us that we are Christ's own. That Christ will purify us. He will redeem us. He has made us his own and we are forever his. He will make us ready to take the full weight of his glory. And that's how we live lives according to sound doctrine, by looking at the grace of God and the glorification that is to come in Christ. Grace has come and glory is coming. 
A healthy church has healthy disciples that aren't locked on themselves, but are locked on the things of God, are locked onto the grace and glory of Christ. And through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, we are able to live for Christ. Grace and glory emboldens us for mission. Grace and glory gives us the ability to live selflessly for the good of others. Grace and glory strengthens our resolve in times of trouble and hardship. And grace and glory convicts us to be joyfully, to joyfully disciple those to make more disciples so that people may know him and worship him and so that God may be glorified. Grace has come, glory is coming. Let's live for Christ all of our days and give praise to our great King, hey? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions that you've given us to us to, uh, um, uh, to Titus. That it is based on sound doctrine, it is based on your truth, the truth. Help us to put away aside our, um, our several tendencies. Help us to be people that are wrapped up and obsessed about your glory and your grace. Sometimes we hear these instructions and it pushes up against us. I pray that you, you, you sharpen us, Lord Father. You make us more like your son. Help us to, to have an appetite for the things that are yours. Help us to live in a way that is uh, edifying and encouraging for others and help us to be uh, disciple each other and to grow um, uh, more and more in love with you. Help us to be salt and light in this world and that uh, uh, the way we live our lives, um, that we'll be able to proclaim your gospel in word and in deed, that people will look at us and give glory to you. Not because of how good we are, but how, how good you are to us. Lord, we love you. Help us in all these things. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.